Section sixteen of a book of scoundrels by Charles Wibley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Switcher and Gentleman Harry, Part One, The Switcher. David Haggart was born at Cannon Mills, with no richer birthright than thievish fingers and a left hand of surpassing activity. The son of a gamekeeper. He grew up a long-legged, red-headed callant, lurking in the sombre shadow of the cowgate, or, like the young Sir Walter, championing the old town against the new, on the slopes of Arthur's seat. Kipping was his early sin, but the sportsman's instinct, born of his father's trade, was so strong with him that he pinched a fighting-cock before he was breached, and risked the noose for horse-stealing when marbles should have engrossed his boyish fancy. Turbulent and lawless, he bitterly resented the intolerable restraint of a tranquil life, and at last, in the hope of a larger liberty, he enlisted for a drummer in the Norfolk Militia, stationed at the moment in Edinburgh Castle. A brief insubordinate year, misspent in his country's service, proved him hopeless of discipline. He claimed his discharge and henceforth he was free to follow the one craft for which nature and his own ambition had moulded him. Like Chatterton, like Rimbaud, Haggart came into the full possession of his talent while still a child. A Barrington of fourteen, he knew every turn and twist of his craft before he escaped from school. His youthful necessities were munificently supplied by facile depredation and the only hindrance to immediate riches was his ignorance of flash kens where he might fence his plunder. Meanwhile he painted his soul black with wickedness. Such hours as he could snatch from the profitable conduct of his trade he devoted to the austere debauchery of Leith or the Golden Acre. Though he knew not the seduction of whisky, he missed never a dance nor a raffle joining the frolics of prigs and callets in complete forgetfulness of the shorter catechism. In vain the kirk compared him to a bottle in the smoke. In vain the minister whispered of hell and the gallows. His heart hardened as his fingers grew agile, and when at sixteen he left his father's house for a sporting life, he had not his equal in the three kingdoms for cunning and courage. His first accomplice was Barney Maguire, who, until a fourteen-stretch sent him to Botany Bay, played Clytus to David's Alexander, and it was at Portobello Races that their brilliant partnership began. Hitherto Haggart had worked by stealth. He had tracked his booty under the cloud of night. Now was the moment to prove his prowess in the eye of day, to break with a past which he already deemed ignoble. His heart leaped with the occasion. He tackled his adventure with the hot-head energy of a new member, big with his maiden speech. The victim was chosen in an instant, a backer whose good fortune had broken the bookmakers. There was no thief on the course who did not wait in hungry appetence the sportsman's descent from the stand. Yet the novice outstripped them all. "'I got the first dive at his keek cloy he writes in his simple heroic style and was so eager on my prey that I pulled out the pocket along with the money, and nearly upset the gentleman. A steady brain saved him from the consequence of an o'er-buoyant enthusiasm. 
the notes were passed to Barney in a flash, and when the sportsman turned upon his assailant, Haggart's hands were empty. Thereupon followed an infinite series of brilliant exploits. With Barney to aid, he plundered the border like a reaver. He stripped the yeoman of Tweedside with a ferocity which should have avenged the disgrace of Flodden. More than once he ransacked Ecclefechan, though it is unlikely that he emptied the lean pocket of Thomas Carlyle. There was not a gaff from Newcastle to the Tay which he did not haunt with sedulous perseverance. Nor was he confronted with failure, until his figure became a universal terror. His common method was to price a horse, and while the dealer showed Barney the animal's teeth, Haggart would slip under the uplifted arm and ease the blockhead of his blunt. Arrogant in his skill, delighted with his manifold triumphs, Haggart led a life of unbroken prosperity under the brisk air of heaven, and despite the risk of his profession, he remained two years a stranger to poverty and imprisonment. His worst mishap was to slip his forks into an empty pocket, or to encounter in his cups a milvardering horse-dealer. But his joys were free and frank, while he exulted in his success with a boyish glee. "'I was never happier in all my life than when I fingered all this money,' he exclaimed when he had captured the comfortable prize of two hundred pounds. And then he would make merry at Newcastle or York, forgetting the knowing ones for a while, going abroad in white cape and tops, and flicking his leg like a gentleman with a dandy whip. But at last Barney and wayward ambition persuaded him to desert his proper craft for the greater hazard of cracking a crib and thus he was involved in his ultimate ruin. He incurred, and he deserved, the untoward fate of those who overlooked their talent's limitation. And when this master of pickpockets followed Barney through the window of a secluded house upon the York Road, he might already have felt the noose tightening at his neck. The immediate reward of this bungled attack was thirty pounds, but two days later he was committed with Barney to the Durham Assizes where he exchanged the obscurity of the perfect craftsman for the notoriety of the dangerous jailbird. For the moment, however, he recovered his freedom. Breaking prison, he straightway conveyed a fiddlestick to his comrade, and in a twinkling was at Newcastle again, picking up purses well lined with gold, and robbing the bumpkins of their scouts and chats. But the time of security was overpassed. Marked and suspicious, he began to fear the solitude of the country. He left the horse-fair for the city, and sought in the budgingkens of Edinburgh the secrecy impossible on the hillside. A clumsy experiment in shoplifting doubled his danger, and more than once he saw the inside of the police office. Henceforth he was free of the family. He loafed in the Shirabray. He knew the flash-houses of Leith and the grass-market, with Jean Johnson, the Blowen of his choice, he smeared his hands with the squalor of petty theft, and the drunken recklessness wherewith he swaggered his abroad hastened his approaching downfall. With a perpetual anxiety to avoid the nippers, his artistry dwindled. The left hand, invincible on the cheviots, seemed no better than a bunch of thumbs in the narrow ways of Edinburgh, and after innumerable misadventures Haggart was safely lodged in Dumfries jail. No sooner was he locked within his cell than his restless brain planned a generous escape. 
he would win liberty for his fellows as well as for himself, and after a brief council a murderous plot was framed and executed. A stone slung in a handkerchief sent Morin the jailer to sleep. The keys found on him opened the massy doors, and Haggart was free, with a reward set upon his head. The shock of the enterprise restored his magnanimity. Never did he display a finer bravery than in this spirited race for his life, and though three counties were aroused, he doubled and ducked to such purpose that he outstripped John Richardson himself with all his bloodhounds, and two days later marched into Carlisle, disguised in the stolen rags of a potato-bogle. During the few months that remained to him of life, he embarked upon a veritable odyssey. He scoured Scotland from the border to St. Andrews, and finally contrived a journey oversea to Ireland, where he made the name of Daniel O'Brien a terror to well-doers. Insolent and careless, he lurched from prison to prison. Now it was Armagh that held him, now Dan Patrick until at last he was thrust on a general charge of vagabondage and ill company into Kilmainham, which has since harboured many a less valiant adventurer than David Haggart. Here the culminating disgrace overtook him. He was detected in the prison-yard by his ancient enemy, John Richardson of Dumfries, who dragged him back to Scotland heavily shackled and charged with murder. So nimble had he proved himself in extrication, that his captors secured him with pitiless severity. Round his waist he carried an iron belt, whereto were padlocked the chains, clanking at his wrists and ankles. Thus tortured and helpless, he was fed like a sucking turkey in bedlam. But his sorrows vanished, and his dying courage revived at sight of the torchlight procession which set forth from Dumfries to greet his return. His coach was hustled by a mob, thousand strong, eager to catch sight of Haggart the murderer, and though the spot where he slew Morin was like fire beneath his passing feet, he carried to his cell a heart and a brain aflame with gratified vanity. His guilt being patent, reprieve was as hopeless as acquittal, and after the assured condemnation he spent his last few days, with what profit he might, in religious and literary exercises. He composed a memoir, which is a model of its kind. So diligently did he make his soul that he could appear on the scaffold in a chastened spirit of prayerful gratitude. And being an eminent scoundrel, he seemed a proper subject for the ministrations of Mr. George Coombe. That is the one thing I did not know before, he confessed with an engaging modesty when his bumps were squeezed. And yet he was more than a match for the amiable phrenologist whose ignorance of mankind persuaded him to believe that an illiterate felon could know himself and analyse his character. His character escaped his critics as it escaped himself. Time was when George Borrow, that other picaroon, surprised the youthful David thinking of Willie Wallace upon the castle rock, and Lavingro's romantic memory transformed the raw-boned pickpocket into a monumental hero, who lacked nothing save a vast theatre, to produce a vast effect. He was a Tamburlaine robbed of his opportunity, a valiant warrior who looked in vain for a battlefield, a marauder who climbed the scaffold, not for the magnitude, but for the littleness of his sins. Thus Borrow, in complete misunderstanding of the rascal's qualities. Now Hackett's ambition was as circumscribed as his ability. He died as he was born, 
an expert cliffhaker whose achievements in sleight of hand are as yet unparalleled. Had the world been one vast breast-pocket, his fishhook fingers would have turned it inside out, but it was not his to mount a throne or overthrow a dynasty. My forks, he boasted, are equally long, and they never fail me. That is at once the reason and the justification of his triumph. Born with a consummate artistry tingling at his fingertips, how should he escape the compulsion of a glorious destiny? Without fumbling or failure, he discovered the single craft for which fortune had framed him, and he pursued it with a courage and an industry which gave him not a kingdom, but fame and booty, exceeding even his greedy aspiration. No Tamerlan he, questing for a continent, but David Haggart, the man with the long forks, happy if he snatched his neighbour's purse. Before all things he respected the profession which his left hand made inevitable, and which he pursued with unconquerable pride. Nor in his inspired youth was plunder his sole ambition. He cultivated the garden of his style with the natural zeal of the artist. He frowned upon the bungler with a lofty contempt. His materials were simplicity itself, his forks, which were always with him, and another's well-filled pocket. Since, sensible of danger, he cared not to risk his neck for a purse that did not contain so much as would sweeten a grawler. At its best his method was always witty. That is the single word which will characterise it. Witty as a piece of highness prose, and as dangerous. He would run over a man's pockets while he spoke with him, returning what he chose to discard without the lightest breath of suspicion. A good workman, his contemporaries called him and they thought it a shame for him to be idle. Moreover, he did not blunder unconsciously upon his triumph. He tackled the trade in so fine a spirit of analysis that he might have been the very Aristotle of his science. The keek cloy, he wrote in his hints to young sportsmen, is easily picked. If the notes are in the long fold, just tip them the forks. But if there is a purse or open money in the case, you must link it. The breast-pocket, on the other hand, is a severer test. Picking the suck is sometimes a kittle-job, again the philosopher speaks. If the coat is buttoned, it must be opened by slipping past. Then bring the lil down between the flap of the coat and the body, keeping your spare arm across your man's breast, and so slip it to a comrade. Then abuse the fellow for jostling you. Not only did he master the tradition of thievery, he vaunted his originality with the familiar complacence of the scoundrel. Forgetting that it was by burglary that he was undone, he explains for his public glorification that he was wont to enter the houses of Leith by forcing the small window above the outer door. This artifice, his vanity grumbles, is now common, but he would have all the world understand that it was his own invention, and he murmurs with the pedantry of the convicted criminal, that it is now set forth for the better protection of honest citizens. No less admirable in his own eyes was that other artifice, which induced him to conceal such notes as he managed to filch in the collar of his coat. Thus he eluded the vigilance of the police, which searched its prey in those days with a sorry lack of cunning. In truth, Haggart's wits were as nimble as his fingers, and he seldom failed to render a profitable account of his talents. He beguiled one of his sojourns in jail by manufacturing tinder 
wherewith to light the prisoner's pipes, and it is not astonishing that he won a general popularity. In Ireland, when the constables would take him for a Scot, he answered in high Tipperary, and saved his skin for a while by a brogue which would not have shamed a modern patriot. But quick as were his wits, his vanity always outstripped them, and no hero ever bragged of his achievements with a louder effrontery. Now all you ramblers in morning go, for the prince of ramblers is lying low. And all you maidens that love the game, put on your morning veils again. Thus he celebrated his downfall in a ballad that has the true Newgate ring. And verily in his own eyes he was a hero who carried to the scaffold a dauntless spirit unstained by treachery. He believed himself an adept in all the arts. As a squire of Danes he held himself peerless, and he assured the ineffable Coombe, who recorded his flippant utterance with a credulous respect, that he had sacrificed hecatombs of innocent virgins to his importunate lust. Throes and verse trickled with equal faculty from his pen, and his biography is a masterpiece. Written in the peddler's French, as it was misspoken in the hells of Edinburgh, it is a narrative of uncommon simplicity and directness, marred now and again by such superfluous reflections as are the natural result of thievish sentimentality. He tells his tale without paraphrase or adornment, and the worthy writer to the signet who prepared the work for the press would have asked three times the space to record one half the adventures. I sunk upon it with my forks and brought it with me. We obtained thirty-three pounds by this affair. Is there not the stalwart flavour of the epic in these plain unvarnished sentences? His other accomplishments are pallid in the light of his brilliant left hand. Once, at Derry, he attended a cockfight, and beguiled an interval by emptying the pockets of a lucky bookmaker. An expert who watched the exploit in admiration could not withhold a compliment. "'You are the switcher!' he exclaimed. "'Some take all, but you leave nothing.' And it is as the switcher that Haggart keeps his memory green. End of section 16